you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of Luke. We're back in Luke's gospel and looking at the question of what would compel someone to follow Jesus, to give up their life, to follow him. What would do that? And so we're looking at these different encounters that Jesus has throughout the gospel of Luke to see what we can learn and glean from those things that we might either for one of us, some of us for the first time, consider following Jesus, consider the truth claims that he presents, or maybe for others who have considered themselves to be followers of Jesus for a long time, what new things might we hear and in fresh ways. We're in chapter 8, or page 866 of your pew Bible, beginning in verse 40. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all of her living on physicians... She could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. And falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with, the, with him except for Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that, that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, and he charged them to tell no one what had happened. It's the reading of God's word. Let me pray for us and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask that you do what we are powerless to do, and that is change us. So we pray that you would be with us this morning. We pray that you would teach us, that you would help us. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. I was making lunch yesterday, and as the weather opened up, so did our doors, and kids were 
running around, and it was sort of one of those parenting moments, which is kind of too common these days, where you sort of know where your kids are, right? And some people are outside, some people are next door, whatever. And um, I was getting lunch ready, and all of a sudden, from the back hallway, I hear sort of what, what definitely was a cry, what definitely was some sort of hurting. And so, as a parent, I investigated that, even though I had noodles cooking on the stove. And I go, and I hear this crying, and it's coming from our girl's bedroom, and I get in there, and there's Virginia in her bed, and she's holding her arm underneath her arm. And she's crying, but she's not hysterical yet, and I'm just trying to figure out what happened, and it's clearly she's done something she's not supposed to do. She's not telling me, but she's afraid to tell me what's happened, and, and I can tell she's hurt, so we do some of the emotional, you know, this is what, you know, the dad MD stuff, like, can you raise that elbow? Can you raise that arm? Um, how hurt are you? And, and at this point, you feel like, well, I got the cure for this. Um, let's go have lunch. That usually fixes things. Because she didn't really seem like she was in a whole lot of, of pain. Um, it didn't look like there was really much wrong with her. But as time went on, uh, over the next 30 to 45 minutes, she just kept crying and kept asking and saying that something was wrong with her arm. Until finally, I took her back to our room and I began to look underneath her arm, underneath her shirt. And there was this four-inch gash of the likes that I have never seen before. And, you know, in those moments, you know, you're supposed to keep the uh, straight face, like everything's okay. That's the opposite of what happened to me. And I just, I, I, at this point, I'm not really sure how deep it's gone, if it's going to need stitches, but just the, the look of it was horrific. And I'm trying to get the phone out to take a picture to, to send, <laughs> I don't know why, but to send to Ada, I don't know what that would have done. She was at work, who decides, you know, um, but it became clear that it, it wasn't as bad as it looked. But as I, I, as I told her, I said, Virginia, I, I've got to dress this. I've got to clean it. I, we've got to get a Band-Aid on it because this is pretty bad. She just began to cry more and more and more. And then as you get the tub of, of cleaning stuff out, and uh, luckily I didn't grab the rubbing alcohol. I went with the hydrogen peroxide. And you begin to get the cotton ball and do the whole bit, and you go to... And the closer I would get to her, the more she would cringe, the more she would scream, right? And, and, and the more painful it would be. And, and she would not let me dress her arm. And now the panic's setting in with me because I know what she needs more than anything. In order to be healed, it's for me to dress this, to get that Band-Aid on there. But it seemed like the closer that I got to her, the more she screamed, the more she refused, not wanting anyone to get close and to, to do the actual work that needs to get done to allow healing to happen. What do we ourselves know about healing? This is the next sermon in our series. I think it's pretty appropriate too for our, our stage in life in the church. What do we know about healing ourselves? What do we know about what we truly need in order to be healed? Is there really anything wrong with us in the first place? Many of us ask. You see, so much of what I experienced with Virginia yesterday is really how we deal with God, at least as we see this in Scripture. There's a problem. It's pretty serious. And it needs to be addressed, but so often we are unwilling to let God come in and do what is necessary in our lives for him to heal us. In other words, the closer he gets, the more we tend to scream. What do we really know about this topic of healing? How to heal? What healing really looks like in the first place? And if something is wrong, how am I sure 
that what I'm doing to heal myself isn't actually hurting myself. Where do we start? Where do we start? Our text this morning gets at all these questions. And in in my mind, what I want to present to you is a great place for us to begin seeing the type of healing that Jesus truly brings his people. Why we need it and why we should and need to receive it. What we'll see from Luke is that true healing from Jesus and for Jesus isn't just him stopping the bleeding as it were. But it's him giving us a new identity, a new story, which is actually him giving us himself. That's what healing is. That's where it begins. And so to get at that, I want us to look at these three things that are printed in your bulletin, the desperation of the passage, the hope of the passage, and the power in the passage. So the desperation, the hope, and the power. Let's look at the first one here, the desperation in the passage. Luke tells us in verse 40 that Jairus comes to Jesus because his daughter is sick and that she is close to death. Later, we find out that before Jesus gets to her, she has already died. In the middle of this story, Luke gives us another story. That of a woman who has been hemorrhaging blood for over 12 years. It's all pretty sad and the scene is all but hopeless. Two people completely powerless to fix what's wrong with them and those that they love. Most of you by now, I'm sure, are familiar and aware of the horrific sexual abuse scandal that came out of Michigan State in their athletics program, where countless women on the gymnastics team there were sexually abused by the school's doctor, Larry Nazer. Over the course of decades, some of you watched the courtroom scenes even, and you saw these brave women get up and give their stories and their testimonies. It was pretty remarkable and incredible to see them do that. And all their stories resonated with me. But there was one story, certainly as a father with girls, that resonated with me perhaps more. And that was Randall Margraves. If you saw this father of Lauren and Madison, who had both been sexually abused by Larry uh, on the gymnastics team. And the judge, um, as he's issuing and letting these women speak, Randall gets up there and he says, and asks the judge for five minutes alone in a locked room with Larry. And at this moment, you're like, please say yes. Please say yes. And of course, she, she doesn't and she can't. And then he asks for just one minute. Just give me one minute. And she's trying to figure out how serious he is. And she says no, and then we find out how serious he is because at that point, he beelines from the back of the courtroom to try to take matters into his own hands and get at this predator that had gone at all of these girls, two of his including. But it's not long before he is met by three police officers who tackle him, who subdue him, who have to force him and pin him to the ground and handcuff him. The scene is so painful because not just not re- disregarding what we're here for, right? What we're listening to. But it's so painful in this moment because you want what you wanted Mr. Margroves to get. You wanted him to get to Larry. <laughs> but you knew that by doing so, nothing would change. It wouldn't fix a thing. And the scene ends with him completely pinned down by the officers, powerless, shouting, one more minute. Just one minute. That's how this story should come to us this morning. Two people 
completely powerless to fix what is wrong with them and what is wrong with those that they love. They are pinned to the ground, as it were, with a condition that has left one woman bleeding for 12 years and a father who has no answers for the health of his daughter. And as it turns out, we have more in common with this woman and more in common with with, with Jairus this morning than we probably even realize. When we look at this hemorrhaging woman for just a minute, Luke tells us that she has spent everything that she has to find a cure for her bleeding and nothing has worked. You might even be asking, why is her bleeding a problem beyond the obvious? And her bleeding is a problem because it makes her ceremonially unclean in this context, in this day and age as a Jewish person. She could not go to the temple and be in the presence of God until she was healed. Likewise, people could not come in contact with her because she was unclean. And so this condition probably left her isolated. Now, just a little background on what it means to be ceremonially unclean. The book of Leviticus, stay with me, (laughs) gave God's people laws to follow in order for them to deal with their sin problem, in order that he might be with them. And there were these three purposes for the law, to remind them, first and foremost, that the Lord is holy. This is the chorus of Leviticus, right? The Lord is holy. And by consequence, by me being holy and because of your sin, you are not holy, right? And so this is, this is a reminder to God's people that his desire to be in the presence of an unholy people because he's holy is a problem. And so what are we going to do about it? And this gets to the second. And that was how Israel was to know who they were supposed to be. That who they were were God's children. And as such, they were to reflect this holiness, that sin has now allowed them not to do. You might think about it this way. It's kind of how we feel if you have kids when they go over to a friend's house, right? And they do not say yes, sir, and no, sir, and yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am, and thank you very much, and can I help you pick up, and thanks for inviting me. As a parent, that concerns me because what? They are representing more than themselves at this place and time. They're representing their parents, right? And such is is the same here. For God's children, God's creation, we were created to reflect God's holiness, to be reflectors of those things, but sin has made this impossible. Something unclean cannot reflect what is truly clean. This is what holiness is. And so these laws were to come in and to show Israel this, and God, along with these, gave gave them ritual cleansing laws. And these laws would would instruct Israel on how to be made clean after one had come into contact with something that wasn't clean. There were hundreds of these laws because there were literally hundreds of ways for you to become unclean. Coming into the contact with a dead person was one of those, those, those laws. Coming into contact with blood was absolutely one of those laws. But God gives Israel these laws so that they could do something. They could change their story, if you will. So that he might be able to come into contact with them. It is how God was healing his people in the Old Testament. Blood, however, as it turns out, has a significant role in the Old Testament. Lost human blood, according to Dr. J. Sklar and his wonderful work on the book of Leviticus, was one of the most ritually defiling substances in ancient Israel. Why? It was to signify, and this is so important for us to get at 
what is going on in Luke this morning. It's not just your behavior that keeps you from God. It's something inside of you. It's your blood. It is, it is something deeper than just your actions that need healing. It's every part about you that needs to be healed, that needs to be cleaned. And this is the third reason for those cleansing laws. The laws were actually to point past the surface level uh, things that the ceremonial laws pointed to, to something much bigger and deeper, a bigger and deeper problem that sin has caused. It's as if these laws were saying to Israel, your problems run much deeper than what makes you, quote unquote, ceremonially unclean. And can you see that? You can be perfect in performing these cleansing laws. You can even be fit for God and worship every day. But if you're not allowing these laws to point past those things to the deeper issues of what is going on in your heart, then you're missing the whole point. And if you've read any of the Old Testament, you know that Israel often missed the point. And the same is true for us. But let's come back to our text this morning. Jesus encounters then a woman who is what? Ritually and ceremonially unclean. And everybody reading this that would be Jewish would know this. And she's unclean from the hemorrhaging of blood that does not stop. She is not to be touched. She's not allowed in the temple. And those that come into contact with her must wait to be purified themselves before entering back into society. Her body just simply wouldn't heal itself. What is she supposed to do? And what about her community as we kind of think about this further? She probably has none because of her condition because she is constantly in the state of what? Being unclean. And therefore, no one is permitted to embrace her. Luke even shows us in verse 47 that it was her instinct to hide as she was afraid of being found out. Why? Because she doesn't belong there. She's unclean. So why is she here in this story? She is a living metaphor for all of us of both the hopelessness of our unclean hearts before a holy God and our inability to fix ourselves. Let me say that one more time. She is a living metaphor for all of us of both the hopelessness of our unclean hearts before a holy God and our inability to fix those hearts ourselves. And if it didn't seem like this was bad enough, if you weren't gleaning this from the passage as we read it, it actually gets worse to make sure that we do get it. Where we might think that we have hope for this woman to one day encounter some type of medicine or some type of procedure to stop the bleeding. We are without hope by the time Jairus finds out that his daughter is dead. Do you see what Luke is doing? This is the desperation that Luke wants us to feel. Issues in life that we have no power over and no answers for. It is never fun to start here on a Sunday morning, especially given our context this morning. But it would be malpractice not to. We are unclean and we are unfit before God himself because of our sin, which ultimately leads to death. The complete marring of God's image itself And before we leave this point, I simply want to ask, can we enter into the desperation that this woman and that Jairus are experiencing this morning? Can we see their desperation as ours as well? And I think we can because we know that this is life. 
And the question is, what are we going to do about it? What is our solution for this? And perhaps more importantly, is there hope for this? And there is. And this gets to our next point. But this is the desperation of the passage. Now let's see what can be done about it. This is the hope of the passage, our second point. The hope of the passage is that what we have no power to fix ourselves, what we have no power over, Jesus does. Jesus does. What we can't fix, he can fix, friends. What we can't heal, he can heal. In other words, what our problems for the woman and for Jairus and ultimately for us are not problems for Jesus in this story. Don't miss that. And what Luke is telling us here is that the hope of the passage is not that Jesus has the power to heal, which he does. It's not that Jesus has the authority to heal, which he does. It's actually that Jesus is healing himself. He himself is the healing that we need. And he has given himself to us in order to be healed. The hemorrhaging woman so clearly shows us this in her desperate attempts to just touch Jesus in some way. In verse 44, if you look at it, she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood blood seized. Immediately it stopped. But you know what else stopped for her? In that moment, the shame and the guilt that something is fundamentally wrong with me and that I can't stop. Which she had no power over, Jesus did. Why? Because Jesus isn't just the one who heals. He is healing himself. Luke isn't just showing us something cool that Jesus can do. He's showing us who Jesus is, and we'll actually get more of this next week when we look at a transfiguration. But Jesus is the one this woman must go to with her hopelessness. And the same for Jairus and the same for you. The hope of this passage and ultimately for this world is that there is a place for all of our hopelessness. Amen? Yes, even the kind that death itself leaves us with. But our temptation far too often... Our temptation is to think as far as ritual cleansing laws will take us, which is the surface, and not where you need healing the most, which is the heart. Let me be clear. The Bible in this passage is not suggesting here that proper faith will heal your cancer. The Bible is not suggesting here that proper faith will bring your loved ones back to life. But what the Bible is suggesting is that simple faith can heal something deeper and darker that the cancer only points to. Our sin and ultimately our separation from God and each other. And that is why hope in the Bible is not hope for the short run, although it is nothing less. Hope in the Bible is always hope for the long run. But if I'm honest at this point, when I hear those words, I kind of lose patience. Because I'm kind of tired of hearing that. God's going to make all things right. He's going to fix it. You just wait. I'm tired of that because I want it now. I want the shalom right now. I want the healing that we talk about and that we long for this morning to happen right now. I am so sick and tired of waiting. 
12 years, 12 years of bleeding is a living hell, friends. And not just physically, which is why we have to do the work of getting into the context, but socially, psychologically, emotionally, especially in this day and age. Why did it have to take this long? Seconds are in eternity when you are looking at your 12-year-old who is dead. Why did this have to happen? How am I supposed to maintain hope for the long run here? And see, this is right where Luke wants us. This is right where Luke wants us. And this is where Luke comes to us and he says, now you get it. Now you get it. You're beginning to see that what you really want isn't temporary healing. You want to be in the presence of healing itself. You want to be in the presence of shalom itself. You want to be with Jesus. Don't be confused. Look, these women who have just been healed and brought back to life physically, they will still have to die one day. They will still have to part ways with those who love them the most. And the joy of being healed physically in this world will be of little concern compared to the joy of being healed morally or spiritually as they lie on their deathbeds and the years to come knowing that they are going to the one that their heart truly longs to be with. The joy that Jairus feels with the return of his daughter, which would be incredible will pale in comparison to both of them being in the actual presence of Jesus together for all eternity. This is where Luke is pointing us. They need a better healing, a better rescue than the one that just stops the bleeding and restores them to good health here. And the same is true for me and the same is true for you. You don't want temporary healing. You want to be in the presence of healing. You want to be with Jesus. Isn't that what's in our glasses at night, friends? <laughs> right? You don't want a taste of the glory. You want glory itself. The reflection of that glory as Jesus stands and looks at you. Because you're in his presence. Vacations are great. Wine is great. Sex is great. Work is great. But that's not what you want. And you may not know it, but what you really want is to be in the presence of healing itself. And the hope of this passage is that this is actually possible. And I'm not kidding. It is possible. What we have no power over, Jesus does. What are problems for us are not problems for him. Where we are powerless He is mighty to save. And where there was once separation, there is the promise that we will no no longer be separated from him. We have a place to take all of our hopelessness. You have a place to take all of your hopelessness, all of your shame, all of your guilt, all of your anger, all of your frustrations, everything. But don't miss this. You also have a storehouse for your hope. And that is Jesus himself who unites himself to you by faith, who washes our unclean blood with his perfect blood on Calvary. 
This woman tried everything until she was broke and nothing worked. Jesus, what cost her nothing, ironically, was the only thing able to fix her. And so it is for us. And that's not really a miracle. That's just who Jesus is. That's what he does. It's just true. And it's for any of us who would come to him. He is the one who calls out from Isaiah 55, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Here he is, chapter eight of Luke. Why? Because Jesus is healing, is healing itself. And he was come to give us himself. He is the hope of this passage. So what does that really mean for me? What does that really mean for you? How does Jesus heal? How does he do that? And what does that really look like for those who go to Jesus? And this is the final point. This is the power of the passage, which will hopefully function as some application for us. That Jesus doesn't just come to stop the bleeding, as we mentioned, but he has come to give us a new identity. And he has come to identify with us as well. First, let me look at this idea of truly how he truly identifies with those hurting. Where do we see this? And I don't want you to miss this in the passage. How does all the healing take place in this story? It's by touch. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? She came trembling and falling down before him and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. But taking her hand, touch, he called saying, child, arise. Healing has come about through touch here. Which only happens because Jesus and his ministry is incarnational. He is the one who has taken on flesh. That is, all of all the ways for God to heal us, the last thing he needed to do was become one of us and enter into our own hopelessness. But he does. So much so that he can actually be touched and that we can touch him because he's real. Why does he do this? To identify with the hurting. To know you. To know what hurting is like. To identify with you. It's one thing if you send money to a missionary, perhaps in China. It's one thing to send that money to that person. It's quite another to buy a plane ticket and to go visit. And to smell the smells in the streets. To know where this person sleeps. To know where this person eats. To get a feel for what the weather is like. Why? Because having gone there, you can truly identify with that person. You know what it is like. You know what that person needs. And at the same time, that missionary can on some level feel understood as well. This is what Jesus is doing for us. Do you think this woman that is healed in this text by Jesus calling her out of hiding and making sure the crowd knew of what had happened, do you think she felt understood by Jesus' engagement of her? where nobody ever else would ever engage her because of her uncleanliness. As opposed, perhaps, just imagine, as opposed to her touching his robe, being healed, and him never stopping to acknowledge it and know what it was like to be her, to see it on her face, 
that her whole life had been a life of hiding, of trembling and fear, and to see her reaction when he says the words, go in peace. Jesus has come to identify with you. Vern Poitras in his book, The Miracles of Jesus, puts it this way. Jesus by touch symbolizes his identification with sinners and their sin. He wants to know you, in other words. Jesus will ultimately identify with us on the cross as he what? As he takes and becomes sin for us. What that means is that Jesus knows your worst moments, friends. (laughs) The story's out. He knows you. He knows your shame. He knows your guilt. He knows what makes you unclean. Even more than you know yourself. But he still loves you. That's how true healing begins. This woman, after Jesus is done with her, no longer has to hide. And either do we. The gospel says that I can be both honest about my sin and honest about my brokenness, while at the same time know that I am loved in spite of those things. Why? Because Jesus has come to identify with me. He is not ashamed of me. He is not ashamed of you, just as he is not ashamed of this woman. And knowing that this morning, friends, is the beginning of all healing. But look, it doesn't stop there. Jesus gives us a new identity as well. Look with me one last time in verse 48. Something that would be easy to overlook, I know, but how does Jesus address this woman after he heals her? He calls her daughter. My own personal opinion, this is the most important word in the entire story. He calls her daughter. And again, with Jairus' daughter in verse 54, with her parents in the room, he addresses her as what? Child. These are not terms of endearment, friends. These are terms of status and of new identity. That you who were once unclean and far off in your sins are now brought near. And now you belong to a new family. You belong to a new kingdom and a new father. And that is what ultimate healing looks like, friends. Jesus doesn't just heal these women physically and externally and send them on their way. (laughs) He heals them by bringing them into his family, by making them his own. He heals them spiritually by giving them a new name and a new identity. It's the language of adoption, is it not? That is, the language of God's kingdom is always set in terms of sons and daughters, of children of God. And what Jesus shows us here is that his healing is capable of way more than stopping the bleeding. And it's capable of way more than stopping death too. His healing is full restoration. It is new identity. It is a new story. This woman whose life for 12 years had been marked out by shame and guilt and embarrassment and isolation, she gets a new story. She gets a new story. And Jesus' story, one of perfect perfection and glory, is now hers. That is her new story. 
And that's what adoption is. What's mine is yours. The implication is the same for Jairus' daughter as her spirit returns to her. What adoption tells us this morning is that our sin, our mess, our hopelessness by faith gets, uh, gets us a new story. That sin, what makes us unclean before the Father, what all those ceremonial laws were supposed to help us with, <clears throat> no longer defines us as humans. And that is where true healing begins. Let me make one note about this. With this healing also brings new tools into the world that is hurting as well. Tools of forgiveness, of grace, and of love. As the blood of Jesus heals us, we are able to drop our old tools of fear, of hiding, and of isolation and take up the tools of the kingdom which is the power to forgive and be forgiven, which is the humility to extend grace, but also the humility to receive it. And it's the power to love, but also to be loved as well. Far too often, we would settle to have God just sort of stop the bleeding when his blood and his cross offer so much more. This is the power in the passage that Jesus comes to identify with you, but also to give you a new identity. <clears throat> well, we've seen the desperation, we've seen the hope, and we've seen the power. What are we taking away? I wish we had more time to dive into this, the specifics of how we experience true healing from ourselves, from others, <clears throat> those who have wronged us, those who have been wronged. But guess what, friends? Just as we saw new members join today and those be baptized, that's what being a, a family is all about. We have all the time in the world to work this out and discuss this together as a family. What we see this morning, though, is the foundation for all of that, is it not? That God's prescription for true healing doesn't look like a formula. It doesn't look like five steps. And if you're taking anything away from this, take it, take this. What God's prescription for healing looks like is him giving us himself. So it's giving us himself. It looks like a person. That what God wants to give us in all the places we hurt, in all the places that we are powerless to fix, in all the places that we need healing, is himself. What keeps you from that this morning? What, like the hemorrhaging woman, are we willing to risk to receive this? And maybe it's too much for some of us. But I think it's a good question. What are we willing to risk? Because here's the deal. Whatever that is for you this morning, whatever it is you're risking or considering to risk, know that you go to the one who has already risked everything for you. And that is his cross. This is Jesus. Why? Because he loves you. Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for <clears throat> you giving Luke the power and the insight and inspiration to give us these two stories of all the stories that are out there to show us our desperation, to show us our hope, and to show us the power of what your healing does for us as you come into our lives, as you identify with us, and as you give us a new identity. Would we want that? Would we go after that? Would you meet us there? We pray all in the name of Jesus. Amen.